If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find the passage that we're going to be reading in Romans 15 on page 893 of that Bible. If you woke up today thinking life is hard, you are not alone. Life is indeed hard. We, we have dedicated ourselves to parents this morning, and parents know as well as anybody that life is hard. It is difficult to watch over other people. It is difficult when you simply have to wander through this life. Our time on this earth is filled with hardships, pitfalls, and difficulties. As we walk through this wilderness, we're going to find that oases are very few and far between. However, the demands on us for how we are to act and how we are to live amidst these difficulties do not relinquish, they are not minimized, but they are ever-present for us. And we as Christians should recognize this difficulty as easily as anybody else does. Just because life is hard, just because life can be difficult, doesn't mean that we get to sort of reset our morality level and think, well, today is just not a day I'm going to be able to cut it. I can't put up with Carl much longer, and uh, it's just going to be one of those days I'm going to have to seek the forgiveness of the Lord. It's true, you can seek the forgiveness of the Lord, but that doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that it's not sin. We don't get to sort of say, today's not a platinum day for me, it's going to be a bronze day, and I'm going to kind of downgrade to make sure that I can meet the goals that I've set for myself. We don't get to set goals just so we can reach them. I used to joke with people that I'm three times the man I'm trying to be. That's only because I'm not trying very hard. So this is one of the things that we just can't do. The commands of Jesus and the apostles have been put on us. And regardless if you are a seasoned veteran of those commands and a seasoned veteran of the faith in Christ, or if you are new to it, it doesn't mean that you get to adjust the level of it. The level has been set by our Lord himself. We have a very consistent expectation placed upon us. We are expected to faithfully and fully live for others, no matter how hard that might be. Paul understands these things. He understands both the high calling to which we have been called by our Lord, and he understands the difficulties of the world in which we travel. And so today, as we begin reading, we'll find out that Paul really does want to encourage the Romans, not by lowering the standards, He's not going to look at the things that he has talked to them about when it comes to eating and drinking in the kingdom of God and saying, listen, if your brothers are offended by what you eat, then just do it on the weekdays, but for, by any means, just leave the weekends alone. Let them fall into sin during the week, but try to leave them alone on the weekends. Put a stumbling block in front of them, sure, once or twice, but don't try, try to minimize it. Now, Paul is very clear. If it means that you don't eat meat anymore, don't eat meat anymore. If it means that you don't taste wine anymore, then don't drink anymore, but do not do anything that puts a stumbling block in front of your believers. So he knows that what he has called them to is difficult. So he turns here to encourage them by doing something particular. I think by telling them more about himself, by telling them more about why he instructs them this way, by telling him what his goals and and his whole life is pointed at. I think that what we have here is something of Paul telling them how he wants them to live by showing them how he lives. Paul is not the kind of apostle or the kind of leader that says, do as I do, or do as I say, not as I do. But Paul lives his life in a certain way, and he wants the apostles, and he wants all believers, whether people who are great in the faith or people who are little in the faith, to follow in his example. As he says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So let us hear from Paul 
and see today if we cannot imitate the very life that he lived. Begin reading with me in Romans 15, verse 14. There Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the inerrant and infallible word of our God. Let us see if we cannot pursue the very things that Paul pursues. First thing I would like to point out to you is that we should pursue Paul's passion. We should pursue Paul's passion. Immediately after coming off of some very, very difficult verses and giving the explanation of how we find the way we ought to live in Christ, Paul immediately turns to the Romans and seeks to not admonish them, not to run them down, but to rather encourage them. He says, I'm satisfied about you. You're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. He didn't write these difficult things to them to look down at them. He didn't write them to make them think that he was sort of disappointed in them or was worried about their future in Christ or anything like that. But rather, he doesn't want them to be run down from the very things that he just got done saying. And Paul doesn't need to say any of this. He could have just said, listen, I'm an apostle, Christ has given me the ministry of taking the gospel and its entailments to the Gentiles. I'm here as a spokesman for the truth. My job is to dole out the gospel and its implications for you. I'm here to give you facts, statement of truth, guidelines for how you are to live your life. I'm not here to coddle you, not here to hold you by the hand. I told you what you need to know, now go, get it done. Sometimes I feel like that's precisely what people want. There's a reason for this. I think we live in an age and we live in a time where, frankly, many people in our culture are just averse to the truth. They just don't really care for it. They think that it's, it's an establishment of something that is to, to overpower them and oppress them. So we, knowing that we stand against that kind of culture, find that preaching and teaching of the truth is of incredibly high import. And for what it's worth, it is. But we need to understand that preaching and teaching of the truth, even knowing the truth, cannot be all that we do. And it's certainly not all that we're put here for. Paul is always seeking not simply the truth, but he is seeking to get his people to buy into the truth. He's leading his people into the truth, not simply declaring it and letting it sit there. He knows that simply telling them what needs to be done is not always the most effective way to lead people. Certainly, there are people who buy into that. 
There are people who are so strong in the faith that once they are told what the word of God says, they have it convicted in their hearts and their minds and they want to go out and they want to do it. And what they say is, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Just help me to understand what I'm supposed to do and I will grit my teeth and I will go do it. But Paul knows very well that there are a great many others who do not just need to know what the truth is, but they need to be encouraged into it. Many, if not all, need encouragement. To be fair, I would say that if you feel like you don't need to be encouraged, one of two things is likely true. Either you don't feel like you need to be encouraged because your goals are set way too low, or your, well, your opinion of your reaching those goals is way too high. But either way, your calibration is off. Every single one of us, if you truly understood the very things that Jesus Christ put before us and asked us to do, would need to be encouraged, would need to be helped, would need to be aided to do those things. Paul makes himself clear. Listen, I've given you instruction in these areas, but I have great confidence in you. Imagine what it would be like if Paul kind of soft-pedaled this. If he said, I want you to know, guys, I've got some confidence in you that some of you might be able to do some of the things that I have actually asked of you. That would make it seem rather like he's saying, I don't think any of you are going to do a lick of what I just said, but I'm supposed to say it anyway, so I'm going to try and encourage you. It's clear that Paul is overestimating here. He is exaggerating the truth. They don't have all knowledge, and the Romans aren't full of goodness to the absolute brim. But what Paul wants to do is to make his point clear. When he says he's confident, he means he's confident. When he says that he trusts in the Romans and the work of the Spirit in them, he means it. He wants them to buy into it. He has written them sharply, boldly, but simply so that they might be reminded of the importance of the topic. He didn't do so, as we might say, diplomatically, but certainly it wasn't to show his displeasure, to make them feel bad or to scold them. It is not that he is above those things. He is certainly not above scolding people. He is certainly not above rebuking people. But he realizes that far more is at stake than simply an understanding of the truth. Paul's passion, even as the great theologian of the early church, of the church, Paul's passion is not just for the truth. It is for the love of the people of Christ. His passion is for them to know and to buy into the truth. The truth is a vehicle by which his love might be shown because he wants them to go to He wants them to become certain things. He wants them to be certain things. But his goal is never simply to preach the truth. It is to love people. They certainly need truth to rightly love people. But truth is not the end in and of itself. It is always love. And so Paul is encouraging them. Truth is always meant to serve Paul's passion. Our culture seeks to minimize sort of any expression of overriding truth. Universal truth is anathema to them. It is something that cannot possibly be said, whether this is an actual entailment of postmodernism, that people have bought into the relevance of of truth, and that truth is not really universal, but it is what anyone sees from any vantage point. Whether they actually buy into that or not, they don't like our universal truth. Nevertheless, it is important to declare that. But it cannot be declared outside of loving and caring and demanding good out of people. The question then becomes, what is the end of that love? And that brings us to our second point this morning. We ought to pursue Paul's passion in the way in which we pursue Paul's purpose. 
Love is always to have a reason or a goal. The ancients called this talas. It had a, a fulfillment that it came to, an end that it came to. In our culture, love has a very precise function. Love is there to affirm the goodness of people and the choices that they make. So long as they don't hurt other people, whatever that craziness gets into and whatever moral foundation that might be, which is not much of one when you actually look at it, but nevertheless, so long as they don't hurt others, we are to love them by affirming them, by affirming the choices that they make, by affirming how they identify themselves and what they make of themselves. This is why anything short of an affirmation of a person's choices will hardly be deemed by our culture as love. Because if love has the end of affirming them, and you don't affirm them, then you couldn't possibly have truly loved them. They always expect that anyone who declares a love for someone always has that as their end goal, to affirm them, to strengthen them, to give them hope and certainty in and of themselves. Christians also have a telos. They also have a purpose for their love. It is highly different. It's not that affirming people is wrong. Paul affirms people in the Lord. He's affirming the goodness of the Romans here. But that is a minor thing. It is not the main purpose of his writing. We have a purpose in our love for people. How you love others will be defined in a large part by what you want for them. And the clearer we are on the purpose of our love, the more purposeful our love becomes. That purpose is the same for all people. Regardless if it's me for my wife or me for my children, me for the members of this church, my love for my neighbor, my love for my enemies, my love for LGBTQ plus people, that love is always the same. It is the goal that they become more Christ-like. If they don't know the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is to introduce them to that for their own good because I love them and want them to know our Lord. I want my family and I want my church to grow in Christ-likeness and to be more like him. This is exactly what Paul lays out in verse 16 when he says, he was given grace by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. This is exactly what the Old Testament priests were there to do. They had a handbook, namely the Pentateuch, that told them precisely what offerings were to be collected when, how they were to be collected, what they were going to do with those offerings in order that God might find them acceptable and good. And Paul says, that is exactly what has been given to me. I know precisely what is going to make the Gentiles acceptable to God. I know exactly how they ought to live their lives, what they ought to do, when they ought to do it, in order that they might be acceptable before God. And he wants them to be pleasing to God. So the question is, what is pleasing to God? What is pleasing to God is nothing less than his son. With him, he says, I am well pleased. And friend, if you want to please God, the easy way to please God is to trust that the Lord Jesus Christ has done what he has said he would do and seek to be as much like Jesus as you can. This is why Paul says that he was called to bring the obedience of faith to the Gentiles. They were not just to believe in Jesus Christ, but they were to walk in the ways he walked, to do the things that he did. Therefore, we love one another by seeking that obedience in one another. And those who do not know our Lord Jesus Christ by telling them and encouraging them to give their lives over to him. This is not just the duty of Paul. We are all priests. First Peter 2 says, You come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul's purpose was not to love people simply to affirm who they were, not simply to make those people feel better, but rather to make them better, that they might be better, that they might be more like Jesus Christ himself. I'm going to warn you, though, this kind of love and this kind of purpose demands a give and take. It doesn't just mean that you get to sit and you get to critique and rebuke and encourage as though you yourself needed none of that. To give a love like this, that you desire others to become more Christ-like, you yourself have to be open to having the same critiques laid upon you that you might be made more Christ-like. So let us pursue Paul's purpose through Paul's passion. Third, let us pursue Paul's pride. Let us pursue Paul's pride. Many times I've talked about how humility is a necessary part of Christianity. To be a Christian means that you are humble. In the third chapter of the book of Romans, kind of the high point of Paul talking about what Jesus Christ has done for us is he has made a sacrificial atonement for us before God. He has been our propitiation. Immediately, Paul turns around and says, well, what does that mean for us? And the first thing he brings up is boasting is done. There there is no more boasting at all. Jesus Christ has done everything for you. You have no boasting before God. You have no boasting before men. You have no boasting at all. To be like Christ makes it impossible for us to boast in ourselves. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the Lord of all glory, who created all things for himself, through himself, and to himself, humbled himself to take the sins of a wretched and sinful people, that he might be treated like a common criminal, to be humiliated in our place, to allow weak and insipid men to think that they, they had power over him. To be like that takes great and grave humility. There is no place for pride in any of that. So what in the world is Paul saying here? In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. The entailment from the ESV is that Paul is actually proud of his work. I don't think that that's quite right. Verse 17, or verse 18, does clarify that. As for I will not venture to speak of anything except what the Lord Jesus Christ has done through him. I think that that's exactly what the first verse says as well. Paul is not boasting in his work but Paul is boasting that he is an instrument by which God's work is being done. This summer, I decided to do something I haven't done in a long time, and that is spend more time golfing. It's not a lot of time golfing. It's simply more time golfing. And I am not good. Um, I used to be okay at one point in my life, and I'm just not great anymore. But every once in a while, I will hit a good shot. I'll lace a drive, or I'll hit a nice wedge, and I can watch it fly in, and then watch it go over the green, because I have no idea how far I'm hitting the ball anymore. And so... These things happen, but when I do hit a good shot, I don't look down at my driver and say, my goodness, man, you are a beautiful piece of equipment, right? I praise myself. I say, that was a fantastic shot. Uh, I only get to say that one time, so I really go overboard when I do it. We know how this works. We don't praise the equipment. We praise the one who utilizes the equipment. We don't praise the lathe. We praise the carpenter. 
We don't praise the pans. We praise the chef. We don't praise the violin. We praise the musician. Paul, by virtue of his calling, his gifting, and his being sent out by God, is nothing but a tool or an instrument for God to use to bring about the very ends that God has told Paul that he will do. This is exactly what he actually has called us to do already. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul says, don't be an instrument that sin can use to bring about more sin, but you are simply to be a tool for God to bring about righteousness in the world. I think that Paul would say, do you see how good of a craftsman God is? Do you see how wonderful he is that he can use an instrument like me, as fallible and as feeble as I am, as worthless as I am, to bring about the great things that he has done? Do you see how good God is? That's what he's bragging about. The ESV, again, uses this word venture, for I will not venture. I think that he means something much stronger there. He's saying, I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't dare to speak of anything that I had done outside of what Christ has done in me or through me. And why would that be? Because the work that Paul actually desires, the thing that he wants the most in this world, is nothing but making sinful people into the image of a righteous and a glorious Christ. And again, if you think about the culture that we are in, the culture that Paul is in, the culture that we are in, what is it that's going to change people into that? Think through all the things that we believe as Christians and think about how the world holds those things. They've got problems with the way we frame morality. They have problems with the way we even frame the nature of God, whether it's because of the Trinity or because of wrath and anger, because of his viewpoints on sin and what he even considers sin. They, they view these things as horrible, wretched, not worthy of their time. Certainly, when it comes to our morality, over sexual issues and gender, they have problems. They have problems with the way that we view creation. They have problems with the way that we view the afterlife and hell. They've got problems everywhere with us. It'll take a miracle, a miracle, to convert anyone to actually buying into what we buy into. And that's Paul's point. That is precisely what it takes. If he is going to bring the Gentiles into obedience, it's not something that he can do in his own power and might. It is something that only the Spirit of God can do. Only a supernaturally empowered Jesus Christ can actually bring sinful people to repentance. Paul displays an incredibly good grasp on where that power comes from. At one level, yeah, it's word and deed. Paul goes to places. He works with his hands so that they don't have to pay him, so that he can preach free of charge. In word and deed, he is showing that he loves them and he's telling them about Jesus Christ. But those words and those deeds are backed up by powers and signs and wonders that give an emphatic yes and amen from God that what this man is saying is true. And that in turn leads them to believe that there is nothing else but the Spirit of God working in power here. Paul doesn't believe that his own work is doing the job that he has been sent to do. He believes that it is the power of God working through him. So understand this, though. It's not like Paul doesn't matter. Try using a tool that's wrongly suited for a project at hand. Try to fix a car with one of those kids' play hammers. Try to knit something with a tree branch. It's very difficult to not use the appropriate tool to make an appropriate job. And it's not that God can't sovereignly do these things. 
is rather that God chooses to use instruments suited to his purpose because he is indeed a wonderful craftsman. So be a good instrument in the hands of God. God can do great things with inferior tools. He can do awesome things with inferior tools. But his best work is reserved for those who are indeed good instruments and fashioned by his hand. And don't let this be kind of one of those, well, I will boast, but only in case of an absolute emergency. Like when somebody is really, really pressing me, then I will, I will boast of the things that God has done in me, but otherwise I'm going to stay silent. Paul, it doesn't seem like that's the case at all. Rather, you are to strive to be such a good instrument of God in service to Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit that you are able to boast of the work of God that you see around you. That should be your goal, and you should pursue the very Paul, the pride of Paul. Work to that end. Pursue Paul's pride. Lastly, let us pursue Paul's plan. Fourth and last, let us pursue Paul's plan. Paul's statement here halfway through the uh, 19th verse is something of an oddity. He says, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So you have a picture of the Middle East in your mind. You can probably open to the back of your Bibles. There's probably a picture of the Middle East there. Jerusalem sits kind of halfway down the Mediterranean, right there on the coast. Illyricum is sort of the, the west coast of Greece as you go up the Adriatic Sea. And Paul's saying every bit of that. I've done it. I've finished what God has sent me to do. I've finished the ministry that I've been sent to do in those places. And you have to look at a statement like that and say, well, that, that's something, I suppose. I don't really know what Paul means by that. Does he mean that he has literally talked to every single person from Jerusalem all the way up through Illyricum about the gospel of God? That's a lot of area. How are we supposed to understand what Paul is saying there? Well, first we can understand him as a, just making an outright lie. I think that we can kind of cross that one off. We could think that Paul is doing the same thing that he did earlier, and that is exaggerating. That he hasn't really fulfilled all of the ministry, but it's close enough and he wants to move on to other things. The problem with the exaggeration here versus the exaggeration earlier is that they're serving two different purposes. The earlier exaggeration was done to clarify, to make sure that they understood precisely what Paul was saying, that he truly is confident in them, that he truly does believe in them. Rather, the exaggeration here seems to be nothing more than a lie. He uses this as the whole reason why he's going out to Spain. Down in verse 23, he says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, I want to go to Spain. Well, if he does have room for work in those regions but he just doesn't want to do it. This isn't clarity, it's deception. So I think that's out as well. He's not exaggerating. He means what he says. Is it that everyone heard? Well, unless part of the power of the Holy Spirit that was wrought in Paul was that he could squeeze 52 hours out of a 24-hour day, I just don't see how he could possibly have done it. He, he hasn't spent that many years on the mission field. There's a lot of people in between Jerusalem and Illyricum. Rather, I think it's probably this. Paul knew that he was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and that was a massive calling placed upon him. He knew the enormity of the task. And whether by divine appointment or whether by his own wisdom, he sat down and he made a plan for how he was going to do that. And the plan was simple, and it was good. If you look through the text of Acts, Paul stops in major city centers. He stops in larger towns and cities, 
And it's there that he does the vast majority of his work. The larger the town, it seems to be, the longer he stays to make sure that that church is more founded and better. He does this, I think, with the assumption that if there is a church that is set up and established there, that is working properly and well in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the surrounding areas will eventually be evangelized by the people who live there, whether by people coming into the town, which they almost always would have to do at some point in time to get goods, or whether it is by their church members going out into the countryside to proclaim the goodness of the word. So when Paul says that he is done doing the very thing that Christ has sent him to do, what he means is, I've been to the cities. I've been to the major metropolitan areas. I've established churches in those. And I have no more of that work to do here. But there is Spain. There are people who have not heard the word of God. There are places where no apostle has laid their foot. No one has preached the word of God to them. And so that is where I want to go. We still today need to pursue this plan. There are areas of the world where there are absolutely, and we call them, unreached. Now, you might say, well, Bay City has unreached people in it. People who have neither converted to Christianity, they haven't, they haven't understood the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for them, or people who, frankly, even in Bay County and in Saginaw and in Midland, well, they just never heard the gospel. I'm sure that there are people out there who have lived their lives and have never truly heard the gospel. But Bay City is not an unreached area. Neither is the middle of Michigan. We have good churches here. Churches who have and preach the gospel. We have people who know the Lord Jesus Christ and can preach the gospel. We have Bibles. They're easy to find. Not only that, but you can go online and you can find people to preach the Bible to you. You can listen to the Bible in your tongue, in, in English, and in many other languages. They're all available to you here. Anyone who desires to know more about Jesus can start doing anything that they need to to find out more about him. But there are places in the world where that is just not true. No matter how much somebody might want to know the way of salvation, they have no recourse to find out anything about you. They can't go to a church because there are no churches. They can't go buy a Bible because there are no Bibles. They can't listen to good preaching because there's no one who preaches in their language. They can't go ask a friend and a coworker because none of them know Jesus either. There is no help for them. They are ultimately required to wait for people to come to them. Just like the people of Spain had to wait for someone to come and preach the good news to them. So that's why we send out missionaries. It's true, we have missionaries in other places as well, places that have had access to the gospel. But we should rejoice in that we send missionaries to the hardest places. We send missionaries who are willing to give their lives to go and to proclaim the word to people who have never heard it before. We are happy to do this. We ought to continue to do this. This is exactly what Paul was doing. And further, to be a light in our own community because there are people out there who do not believe the gospel. There are people out there who haven't heard the gospel. They may have been raised in church their whole lives and have never truly had the gospel proclaimed to them. So let us be a light in our own community by our lives and words, taking the gospel to those who surround us. In both of these things, let us pursue the plan of Paul. And friends, we ought to be encouraged in doing so. Continue to support your IMB missionaries. I know it's like six months off and no one wants to talk about Christmas. But the Lottie Moon, well, actually everyone wants to talk about Christmas all the time, but the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is coming in December. Put money away for that. That money goes directly to serving people 
who are in the hardest to reach places, that we can send people into jungles, that we can send people into deserts, that we can send people where no one else has gone to name Jesus Christ. That's what that money goes toward. Pray for your missionaries. Pray for their help. Pray for their boldness. Pray for the people who they're working among to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and give so that that might happen. And seek to win the lost here. Tell people about the goodness of Jesus Christ. Encourage them to come to church. Be kind and be loving to them so that just as Paul seeks, by any means, we might do everything we can so that we might say, see some of them be saved. Life is indeed hard, and it is filled to the brim with tragedy. We talked last week about some of that tragedy that is part and parcel of our own issues. We talked about how the SBC leadership and certain churches mishandled sexual abuse and even encouraged sexual abuse. As we talked about that, we took some of the SBC leadership to task. It is worthy of note that the SBC, as they gathered together in Anaheim, sort of the, the rank and file of the SBC is the messengers who get to vote there sent by churches, accepted numerous conclusions that were brought forward from a third party to help combat and stop sexual abuse in churches. Such measures were necessary, good, and godly, even if they were quite too long in being delayed. We still need to pray, but we should be encouraged all the more to pursue the things that Paul pursued with our sister SBC churches because they are with us. The leadership might have been bad, but the rank and file of the SBC, the people who sit in the pews demonstrated that they've got a head on their shoulders and the love of Christ in their hearts. So we should be encouraged by that. Give to the SBC. Give to make missionaries and allow missionaries to go out on the mission field. Give to sister churches that we might partner in evangelism to see the lost one here in the middle of Michigan and all the way to Burma and to Africa and to all the corners of the earth. So pray, but be encouraged. Let us pursue a passion for people, a purpose for love, pride in the work that Jesus is doing all around the world, and a plan for reaching the lost. Let us be good instruments in the hand of Christ and pursue these things for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you are glorified by the lives of your people. When we do wrong, give us the grace of repentance. When we do right, give us the humility of boasting about you. In all things, give us a passion for your name that you might be glorified in this world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ for our good and for your glory. Amen.